today we will finish up our study of the Old Testament book of Ruth. So far we've talked about redemption choices, redemption blessings, and redemption risks. Today we will talk about redemption rewards. But as you'll see, the goals of this sermon are diverse, and so for the sake of clarity, I've decided to organize this one into sections and subsections. Some of you just yawned. Others of you sort of had an uncontrollable surge of giddiness. I want to encourage you to please use your listening guide, especially today, to follow along. I'm afraid you may find yourself getting lost in the details if you do not have the overall structure in front of you. So one thing at a time. First of all, we'll review and then finish the final chapter of the story. One of the most delightful things about the book of Ruth is that it is a story. In a way, only true of the Bible. Ruth both recounts history and predicts history. This is why the story is so powerful. Ruth is a redemption story that tells the redemption story. This is amazing. Who can orchestrate true events at one point in history and then have it retold in such a way as to predict the future? Only God. Only the Bible. Let's review the story to this point. Naomi is married to Elimelech, who, due to a famine, decides to leave his ancestral home in Bethlehem, walking out of the promised land and moving his family to the pagan land of Moab. In so doing, the family chooses to move away from God's immediate presence and his promises. Elimelech promptly dies. Ten years later, his two sons, Malan and Chilion, also die, but only after marrying Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi rightly decides to return to the promised land, but bereft of her husbands and sons, she does so in sorrow. She tells her two daughters-in-law that they should go back to their people and their gods in order to find new husbands. But Ruth makes a faith decision to stay with Naomi and to trust in the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God. With Ruth in tow, Naomi limps back into Bethlehem where, unbeknownst to her, the redemption plan of God is already moving forward. After arriving in Bethlehem where the famine has ended and a great harvest is taking place, Ruth goes to a certain field where she is allowed to scour for scraps of barley after the reapers have done their work. The owner of the field happens to be Boaz, a close relative of Elimelech, and he, being a godly man, takes pity on Ruth and Naomi, loading down Ruth with more food than they can eat and begging Ruth to look nowhere else for providence but to him. After waiting for a time, Naomi encourages Ruth to propose to Boaz since he is a kinsman redeemer. That is a person who can biblically marry Ruth in a way that will restore the family name and the family land. Ruth uses certain biblical references that are understood by Boaz in order to request that he marry her and restore the family. The whole thing is very romantic and Boaz happily agrees but says that he is not first in line and must go through a certain legal proceeding to make sure everything is kosher, which brings us up to today. Final chapter. So let's read the final chapter of the book of Ruth. Chapter 4 from verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. 
And behold, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, the other guy said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire, that is Mary, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malin. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malin, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on the inheritance, his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who are in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. These were the wives of Jacob, later named Israel, the four mothers of the 12 sons whose families became the 12 tribes of Israel, Rachel and Leah. I say, may your home be blessed like theirs. Both of whom, whom built the house of Israel, may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel. May also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Abinadab, and to Abinadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. So that concludes the story. Now let's get into some historical information. I've pushed some of this off because while it is interesting, in sharing information like this, it's easy to lose track of the goal of preaching, which is not as much to inform you as it is to inspire you, to help apply God's word to your life. Nevertheless, we have to understand God's truth before we can apply it, don't we? So let's spend some time on the details before we get to the application. One of the biggest keys to unlocking the deeper meaning of the book of Ruth is understanding the concept of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. During the time of Ruth, it seems clear that everyone knew about this. 
this sort of this cultural program, and apparently it was still being practiced in Bethlehem. The concept uh, uh, is that if a man of Israel were to die without a son, the closest eligible relative was expected to marry his widow and to father at least one son with her so that the family tree or progeny of the deceased would not be cut off. Additionally, there's another biblical mandate which is closely related. It, It says that if an Israelite is forced to sell their piece of property because of poverty, the closest relative or kinsman redeemer is to purchase that land so that it will stay in the family. In our story, Boaz takes care of all of this by acting as the kinsman redeemer for Naomi through her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi had been married to Elimelech, a close relative of Boaz, probably a cousin. Boaz is a perfect example of what God intended in the idea of a kinsman redeemer. By the way, if you weren't here last week, I apologize, I can't go back through all of that again, but we did talk about this. But Boaz is a perfect example of it because his heart is obviously to take care of these women and to keep this little piece of the promised land in the possession of their family line. Let's go a little bit deeper by looking at the passages where God prescribed these ideas in the first place. First, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting with verse 5. Moses writes, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go unto her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. And so we see that Boaz sought to live according to the spirit of God's laws that had been recorded by Moses in Deuteronomy. But remember that he was not the closest relative. So he first had to allow the closest relative the opportunity to marry Ruth. And what did the closest relative say? According to Ruth 4, 6, the man said, I cannot marry her because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. This probably means that he was already married and already had children. Though sadly, it was not uncommon for husbands to have more than one wife at that time, this man was not willing to split the inheritance of his children with any children he would have had through Ruth. I'll just give him the benefit of the doubt and assume he also knew that God's intentions were always for a man to have one wife, as is clear in Genesis chapter 2. At any rate, in accordance with Deuteronomy 25, this man removed his sandal and let Ruth pass to Boaz. It's also clear from this scene that the idea of Deuteronomy 25 had by this time been linked together with the law of Leviticus 25, which says this, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. And so we see Boaz applying both of these laws. He seeks to redeem both Ruth and the land associated with her late husband. He explains to the nearest relative that in order to buy the property, he must also redeem Ruth. Essentially, he says, you cannot reap the benefit of applying one biblical law while ignoring another. 
which happens to be inconvenient for you. I'm thinking there might be a lesson in that for, for all of us. <laughs> At any rate, the elders agree that Boaz is doing the right thing and they give him their blessing. The kinsman redeemer, as he was called, was considered to be a hero, a savior of the situation, the one who, at his own expense, bought back the land and married the widow for her sake, not his own. Hence the word redeemer. This was also considered a sacrifice because the firstborn son would not be his alone, but would also carry the name of the deceased, as the law in Deuteronomy puts it. Similarly, the purchased land would not belong to the redeemer ultimately, as it would pass to the son as soon as he was old enough to possess it. The redeemer was understood to be making a personal sacrifice in all of this, in some ways almost similar to adoption. Though as with adoption and many other things, an initial sacrifice may well lead to our greatest blessing and joy. And so again, the foreshadowing is clear. As is always the case in the Old Testament, everything points forward to the ultimate Redeemer, Christ, whose bride is the church, whose sacrifice was made on the cross, and whose promised land is a place we call heaven. Jesus sacrificed himself to buy us back, and he has purchased a place for us, an eternal home with God, where we most certainly did not belong until he made a way. Now, the second thing I want to think about in terms of historical background is ancestry. Basically, when we study biblical ancestry, we see that people keep getting it wrong, but God keeps making it right. If you are familiar with the overarching biblical story, you know how true that is. People keep getting it wrong, but God keeps making it right. Remember the overarching message of Ruth is that God can redeem anything that happens. From our text today, we heard about Perez, one of the sons of Judah. And Perez was apparently seen as forefather to the people of this area of Ephratha, in which rests the village of Bethlehem. In their blessing to Naomi, the women of the village said, verse 12, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Do you know the story of Judah? who was one of the 12 sons of Israel, and this Tamar who bore to him Perez. You can read about it in Genesis 38, but you probably won't want to do so in the presence of your kids. Putting it in PG, Judah was Tamar's father-in-law, though she later bore to him Perez. See, Tamar had first been the wife of one of Judah's sons named Ur. But that son of Judah was evil, and God killed him before Tamar could conceive and give birth to an heir. So Judah told his other son, Onan, that he should take Tamar as his wife and fulfill the law that we've already covered, which apparently was understood long before Moses ever wrote it down. However, the second son, Onan, selfishly decided to simply sleep with Tamar without giving her a child. And I'm holding off on the graphic details of how he did that. But God saw Onan's selfish actions as evil and struck him dead as well. Tamar was then called upon to wait for the next son of Judah to grow up, which is reminiscent of Naomi's question to Orpah and Ruth, if you recall, about how they surely wouldn't want to wait for her to have more sons. But instead of waiting, Tamar dressed herself up as a harlot with veiled face, which apparently was the custom for harlots at that time. And she seduced Judah, her father-in-law, on purpose. 
The Bible says Judah was unaware of who she was. But when Tamar gave birth to Judah's son, she revealed to him the truth. This son born to Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, was named Perez. He became the forefather of the people in the area of Bethlehem, including Boaz. Some of you thought your story was bad. Seriously, is, is your story any worse than that? I doubt it. And so again, we see that although people always mess things up, God can redeem anything that happens. And I'm not even finished. Let's review the genealogy at the end of Ruth from verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amminadab, and to Amminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Now, I can't get bogged down here, but as any commentary will point out, there were actually some generations left out of this list. That was a common thing to do when recounting a genealogy and a story like this during those days. There are several places in the Bible where Jewish genealogies are representative rather than exhaustive. Right now, understand that while Boaz could not have been the literal son of Salmon, the important thing is, too much time between, the important thing is that Boaz came down the line from Salmon. And here's the crazy part. Salmon's wife was Rahab. Who was Rahab? She was a Canaanite prostitute. We are appalled at sexual immorality in the church today, and we should be. But we should also remember things like this. Rahab slept with married men for money. She was also the one who helped Joshua and Caleb get away after they had spied on Jericho. And she made a faith decision to side with the Israelites and Yahweh over her own people and her God, their gods. Rahab put her trust in the God of Israel, left prostitution, and was married into the family of God, just like Ruth. Rahab was married to Salmon, and through the union of the, through their union, the line descended to Boaz. Are you getting the point about ancestral redemption? God can redeem anything that happens. Just think about this. We have Tamar, who played the harlot to her father-in-law and gave birth to Perez, whose descendant was Salmon, who married Rahab, an idolatrous Canaanite and a prostitute by trade, from whose union descended Boaz, who now marries Ruth, a previously pagan, infant-sacrificing, devil-worshipping Moabitess. They did sacrifice infants to their god, Shamash and Moab. This is the ancestry of the baby of our story, Obed. But some of you know where this is going. Look back at the last verse of the book of Ruth. And to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Wait, the David? Yep, the David. This child born to Ruth and Boaz is actually the grandfather of King David. And so Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth are all in the family line of the most famous king of Israel, writer of most of the Psalms, 
a man after God's own heart, according to Scripture, the giant killing boy who became a king and basically made Israel one of the greatest nations on earth at the time. And also remember that God told David his kingdom would never end. Now, folks, that's redemption. But it doesn't even stop there, does it? No, because guess who, guess how God made David's kingdom eternal? Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, was humanly speaking a descendant of David and was often called the son of David. Mary and Joseph were also part of this crazy, messed up family tree, you see. And Jesus was born to them in order to redeem it all. The Gospel of Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1, and Matthew hides nothing. Right there in the Bible, in Matthew, in a genealogy which, again, is not exhaustive, and some people are left out of the list. Do you know who is not left out? Matthew does not fail to mention Judah and Tamar, Salmon and Rahab, Boaz and Ruth, and finally Joseph and Mary, who, though pure, raised plenty of eyebrows since Mary conceived as a virgin. Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Mary, the foremothers of Jesus Christ. I'll say it yet again, God can redeem anything that happens. Now, we could spend all day on historical information because there's much more, but it's time to move on to part three of this message this is where we'll dig into today's text. So let's spend the rest of our time mostly on application. I'm going to focus on verses 13 through 18, the conclusion of the narrative of this great story. Let's read it one last time from chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his, um, he has not left us without a redeemer, amen? He could have. Has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. I mentioned <clears throat> on the first week of this series that George Lucas has said that the overarching story of Star Wars is the redemption of Anakin Skywalker, a.k.a. Darth Vader. I also said that I believe the overarching story of the book of Ruth is the redemption of Naomi. Obviously, there are side plots, but notice that the book begins and ends not with Ruth, but with Naomi. We say, Naomi, move away from God. Become disillusioned with God. Limp back to God until ultimately she finds herself and her family redeemed by God. In the end, she finds so much joy in her grandson that the women say in good humor, it's as if Naomi's the one who's given birth, even in her old age. The arc of the narrative of this book is the redemption of Naomi. And in the end, Naomi is indeed redeemed. Thank God for happy endings. After all, ultimately, happy endings can only come from him.
I think there are three principles we can learn from Naomi today. And they sort of build upon each other. Three life principles. First, we should realize the greatest reward on earth is family. That's the message of these particular verses. The redemption of Naomi means she has a family again. Remember, she lost her husband and two sons. And she found herself alone in a foreign land. She had no immediate family left. And she was in despair. But at the end of the story, Naomi has been given a daughter in Ruth, a son in Boaz, and a grandson in Obed. Naomi's progeny has been restored, and progeny was everything to God's people. Now, I know this part is going to be hard for some of you for various reasons, but bear with me if you can, because you'll feel better when I get to point two. Again, if you don't like this next part, I promise you'll feel better in a minute. So stay with me. Another word for progeny is posterity or offspring. But more than offspring, what mattered to the Hebrews and to Naomi here was a future beyond self. I'll put it like this. Progeny ensures a continuation of influence beyond the brevity of life. Progeny ensures a continuation of influence beyond the brevity of life. Progeny is like ancestry only looking forward rather than backward. God's chosen people lived for progeny. It was everything to them. This was like the point of life for them. All you have to do is read the Old Testament to see it. Their purpose was basically to be fruitful, to multiply, and to raise a family, going to their graves in peace, knowing that their seed would live on and endure. David talked about this a lot in the Psalms and other places. All throughout the Old Testament, a very high value was placed on leaving behind a family that would carry on your name, inherit your land, and and forward your contributions with them. Why was this kind of thing so important to the Hebrew people? Well, I'll answer that with another question. Why is this not so important to us? Why do so many couples these days seem to think maybe it's better not to have children? I just saw another article this week saying more and more couples are deciding not to have kids, ever. Along those lines, why are we obsessed with living as long as we can? Why do we not care so much about leaving our children an inheritance? Why do we decide to have fewer children? Why is it so strange for us to even think about the fact that we can ensure a continuation of our influence beyond the brevity of life through family? So foreign to us. Why do we place so little value on progeny in this modern era? Well, I think I can tell you the answer to those questions. You're not going to like it. I think we're the most selfish generation of people that has ever lived. And I'm as guilty as anyone. We all tend to be a product of our culture if we don't let the Bible correct us. And correction bites, doesn't it? I'm not sure I thought progeny mattered much until the last few years. I just sort of thought, well, you know, I'll be dead anyway, so why should I care? Of course, I care about what I get to see from my own kids while I'm still alive. But honestly, for most of my life, I never thought about what might happen after I'm gone. 
you know? But then I got older. And honestly, through studying the Old Testament more, a light bulb came on for me. At some point, I've been realizing how unbiblical this part of most of my generation's worldview has been. I didn't realize how much purpose can be found, not just in being a good dad and a good man for the sake of what I can see, but to find purpose in what it all means for the future. And even to think about the way it could impact the kingdom of God for hundreds of years. I'm starting to think about what I leave behind. And I'm not talking about my own little trophies or additions to the world. I'm talking about the family that I am forefathering. A family which could actually amount to hundreds of people who will be born through my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. It sounds crazy, but any genealogist is aware that before you know it, you may well have hundreds of descendants. Do the math out for to four generations sometime and you'll be blown away. You see, this is the deeper meaning of the verse that says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Perhaps redemption's greatest earthly reward is the physical and spiritual fruit that can come through our own redeemed progeny, through our own family. Redemption is a family affair. Seldom is redemption not passed down eventually. Have you ever considered not just the family you have now, but the family that will come from you over the next hundred years? The point is that during Naomi's time, God's people were in touch with this value, and we need to learn from them. We would do well to place a higher value on progeny. By the way, this idea is what our text means when it says Perez was made famous. And when the women pray that Obed will become famous in Israel, the idea of progeny is what they meant. Perez was seen as the progenitor for that entire region. They hoped Obed would become famous like that as well. But today, we don't even value such a thing, which betrays our selfishness and our temporal, unbiblical way of thinking. Why is it selfish? Why is it selfish not to care about future fame of this type? Because we think if we won't ever know about it, why does it matter? Well, it matters for the kingdom of God. Not for your... Not for our own ego. You're right, you won't see it. It matters for the kingdom. That's why it's selfish not to care. Is my life so small that I don't care about what happens after I'm gone? God's people should know better. We should have a broader perspective and understand the importance of progeny. We should also understand, as Naomi clearly did, that the greatest reward during our time on earth is family. Secondly, we should understand that family is not limited to birth. We should understand that family is not limited to birth. That is important, particularly if you're single or if you cannot have children for some reason, but regardless, this is important. Have you noticed this principle in our story? For starters, it's clearly biblical to see a daughter, a daughter or son-in-law as an equal part of your family. That's biblical, folks. Really, it should be this way in our family since we know Scripture tells us the two have become one flesh, right? 
And perhaps even more importantly, we need to see that adoption is a family tie absolutely equal to blood relations. In Scripture, adoptive family is presented as equal to birth family. I'll say that once more. Biblically, adoption is equal to birth. That's precisely how we can be seen as the children of God. Or do you just want to kind of be kind of a child of God? No, we are his children. What do the women say to Naomi of Ruth? They say, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. This was quite a statement from a group of Jewish women. Seven was the number of perfection and everyone that day wanted sons. Someone with seven sons would have been seen as the most blessed person on earth. And honestly, they would have been rich because of the way wealth was earned in those days. Regardless, the women were saying that Naomi's adopted daughter, Ruth, was better than flesh and blood sons. And what about Obed? Have you realized that this baby was not actually a blood relative to Naomi? Obed was the offspring of Boaz, a relative of Naomi's late husband, and Ruth, a previously pagan girl from Moab. There was not a single one of Naomi's genes in Obed. He didn't have her nose or any such thing. Obed was not related by birth to Naomi in any way. Yet the scripture says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Adoption is a beautiful thing. This can be seen in the fact that God repeatedly points to adoption as a picture of our relationship with him. Naomi's love for Obed was no less fervent, though he was an adopted grandson, not a grandson by birth. She found her redemption no less complete in him. Based on the laws we read earlier and the whole tenor of the story of Ruth, it seems obvious to me that God does not want us to limit family to birth. It's not to water down the power of birth family, but it is to elevate the power of choice family. Of all people, the people of God should understand that the rewards of family are not limited to physical birth. Add to this the idea of spiritual family and spiritual offspring, right? In the New Testament, the idea of remaining single is lauded when the purpose of remaining single is to focus on a calling to bear spiritual fruit. In other words, if you would remain single for the sake of focusing on ministry and serving God, that is admirable, according to the Apostle Paul. And I think the reason is that you can absolutely have a spiritual progeny as you make a spiritual difference in the lives of people. Paul was single, after all. But he referred to Timothy and others as what? Sons in the faith. So yes, again, in the kingdom of God, the rewards of family or progeny are not limited to birth. Lastly, from Naomi we can learn that we should find our greatest hope in a baby. Look at the second half of verse 13. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Does that sound familiar to anyone else? The Christ-centered message of the book of Ruth never stops. Thoughts of Jesus will continue through the final words of the narrative for anyone who knows him. 
Christ is represented first in the man, Boaz, and now in the baby, Obed, which, by the way, means servant. Naomi's hope is wrapped up in a baby born in Bethlehem. A baby was clearly meant to point forward to Christ. Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons have given birth to him. They're talking about Obed here, not Boaz. And what do they call this baby? They call him a redeemer sent from the Lord. Are you kidding me? They say Obed will be a restorer of life and a sustainer. This baby a redeemer for Naomi. It's just so awesome, I can hardly stand it. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, which is that pre-Christmas season when we would prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. You'd almost think I timed this, right? But forget about that and be amazed by the timing of God instead. How does he do this stuff? How does he bend history to his will? Back to the point, though he doesn't get much print, in a way, the hero of the book of Ruth is a baby, the hero. Obed is to be the restorer of life and a sustainer for Naomi. For Naomi. See, Obed is not just any baby, but a baby written about in such a way as to prepare hearts for what a baby can do, to point forward to the baby of Christmas, even Obed's progeny. Jesus Christ. But you know, I've noticed a trend in Christian Christmas talk. It's kind of a move toward belittling our celebration of the baby Jesus at Christmas. The line of reasoning goes like this. It isn't the baby who's important. It's only the man who died on the cross that made a difference. But that's just a little bit off base, my friends. There's a powerful message in Christmas. And the fact that God came as a baby in and of itself, is worth celebrating all year long. The message of the baby of Christmas is a message of redemption. Remember what the angel said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This day is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you'll find the baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. Jesus came as a baby, born of a virgin named Mary. He was born for us all. Friends, Christmas is about finding redemption, that is salvation, in a baby, just as the angel said. Why is there hope for redemption in the birth of Christ? Because God is with us now. God has come. He's been here, you see, and so he understands everything. Our hope begins with a baby. And remember where that baby was born, Bethlehem, same village, as little Obed, son of Boaz and Ruth, grandson of Naomi. See, the ultimate reward of Naomi's redemption, her ultimate restorer and sustainer, is none other than the Christ of Christmas. That's why in Christ, the story of the redemption of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and all of us is complete. 
As I wrap up this series, I want to help you focus on the overarching message of the book of Ruth one last time. God can redeem anything that ever happens. And even beyond, and more amazing to know this, God can redeem anyone. There is a powerful message here for each of us. Let me ask you a question. How do you see yourself? We probably all know that all have sinned. Most of us get that we have not been perfect. We all need forgiveness. That said, most of us either see ourselves as a person who's pretty much walked the straight and narrow or as a person who's really messed up at certain points. Most of us see ourselves one way or the other, if we're honest. If you are the one who looks back with a lot of regret, and you know that you really have messed up at different points, then you probably have gotten the message loud and clear from the book of Ruth that God can take care of it all. God can redeem all of it. God can bring your life around to great things, no matter how badly you may have screwed it up. I sincerely hope you got that message out of this series, because that is the truth. But if you are one who feels like you've mostly stayed in the lines, then I want you to really, really think about this. Think about Naomi, who walked away from God at one point, and I do believe she did. And think about Ruth, who had worshipped the false gods of Moab, which, by the way, according to Romans 1, is without excuse, because the true God makes himself evident. And then consider Rahab, who was a prostitute and a polytheistic pagan, and Tamar, who pretended to be a harlot in order to sleep with her father-in-law. And then understand that they are each included in the genealogy of Christ. Here's my question for you, if you don't honestly think of yourself as a bad person like those people. Here's my question. If you tend to think you've mostly stayed in the lines, do you really think you're better than them? Do you honestly think that you are better than Rahab and Tamar and Ruth and Naomi? These women were redeemed by God and they were always going to be redeemed. God knew them and loved them from before the world was created. God redeemed their lives from the pit and that was always his plan. They are twice loved as we have discussed, bought back, redeemed. Now understand that every person you know, people who have messed up badly, people who continually make the wrong choices are not beyond hope. No more than you were. LGBTQ, they can be redeemed too. And when they are, their past no longer defines them before God. Neither should their past define them before the people of God, nor should anyone's past define them in the household of faith. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are redeemed and those who God wants to redeem. If we could look at all people that way, I think it'd make a big difference. God can redeem anyone or anything. He can and he wants to. He wants to redeem them. In a dark, discouraging world, 
We need to believe that truth and we need to remember it and we need to let it change the way we treat other people. You are not better than the foremothers of Jesus. Neither am I. Like Naomi, we're restored and sustained only by the one who came as a baby, born in Bethlehem, born to die for our sins. God can redeem anyone. God can redeem anything that ever happens. But maybe you would ask, how? We've covered that, I think, in every part of this series. It happens for us the same way it happened for Ruth. Through what we might call repentant faith. It happens when we turn. It does not happen until we do. We have to turn from other gods and other beliefs from sin and sinfulness by putting our trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness and also for the ability to continue walking in His direction. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to even understand precisely what is sinful and what is not sinful. Nobody who has ever been saved knew precisely how they would need to change. No, what you have to do is commit to follow Him wherever He leads. That's the kind of repentant faith required. You have to receive God's saving grace into your soul and you do that through a committed kind of faith that says, I am yours from now on. Whatever Jesus says goes. There's a process of change that takes place from that point forward, you see. But that process never begins until you let go and put all your trust in Christ and what he did on the cross to pay the price for your sin. Maybe there's someone here today who wants to have a moment like Ruth had when she said, no, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to before, to the things that I worshiped, to the things that I served, to the way that I lived. Today, I choose Yahweh. As I've said repeatedly through this series, Yahweh is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all referred to as the Lord in the Bible, which if you go back to the Hebrew is the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. They didn't completely know about Jesus, that would be his name. But they had an idea that a Savior was coming and they put their faith in what God was gonna do to save them. Would you do that today? Because we can look back, we know a little bit more. We know that he died on a cross to do it. Would you put your faith and your trust in Yahweh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins with a kind of faith that says, I don't even know what it's going to mean, but I'm ready to walk through whatever it is. As James makes clear, that's the only kind of faith that really saves. Have you ever had that kind of faith? Repentant faith? Surrendering faith? Don't roll the dice on something you're not sure about. Make sure today, let's pray. And if you want to make sure today, just tell God, be my God. Take control of my life. I want to follow you. And put my trust in Jesus Christ. As we sang, my living Hope. My only hope is in you, Jesus. Could you just say that today? 
in your heart. My only hope is in you, Jesus. And what you did on the cross, I put all my hope and all my trust in that. The only way I am going to be okay with you, the only way I'm going to get to be in the promised land and in heaven with you, and I just put my trust and my hope in Jesus today. Take my life, help me find out what it means to follow. I'm turning today, I'm turning away, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. If that's a decision and a prayer that you prayed today and a a moment that you've had with God, I believe based on so many scriptures that you can know that He has saved you, that He is coming into your life, He's going to change you, and He's going to help you walk and endure to the end. I hope you'll let us know if you made a decision today. Not sure everybody knows this chorus, but I just feel like singing it. Hopefully you'll catch on if you don't. It's really simple. My only hope is you, Jesus. My only hope is you. From early in the morning. From early in the morning till late at night. My only hope is you. You know it now. Let's sing it together. My only hope is you, Jesus. My only hope is you. From early in the morning. From early in the morning till late at night. My only hope is you. Father, help us walk in faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.